this president rode to office on a wave of appealing to white racial resentment and grievance. And so in some ways, it's not surprising what happened. In fact, as I argued in the, in the article, this was the inevitable result of where the last four years of demagoguery have gotten us. Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. It is hard to put into words what exactly we witnessed today because we have not seen this before. Thousands storming the Capitol after a rally with President Trump, during which he urged them to march on the Capitol. Chaos and lawlessness striking at the heart of American democracy. Breaking out after the President of the United States urged an angry mob of his own supporters to confront members of Congress and even his own Vice President who were preparing to certify the election. By now, we've all seen and heard what happened on the afternoon of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, a violent mob, which was incited by President Trump, uh, stormed the Capitol. They were there to disrupt Congress uh, as it was certifying the election, the very legitimate election of Joe Biden. Um, the mob overwhelmed the Capitol Police and made their way into the offices and chambers. And we saw the images of elected officials running for their lives. America immediately wrote and published an editorial saying that the cause of the violence lands squarely on Donald Trump. We also condemn the misuse of faith, not only by these insurrectionists, but by other Christian and Catholic leaders to stoke fear and prejudice or for their own personal or political gain or for ideological purposes. And we also published an article by Father Brian Massingale. He's a professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University, a Jesuit university in New York. And his article was entitled The Racist Attack on Our Nation's Capital. And we'll link to it in the show notes below. And Father Massingale said the insurrection was a direct result of four years of lies from Donald Trump. And he also drew out the deep-seated racial elements, saying, and this is a quote, what we saw today is a clear declaration that many white people would rather live in a white dictatorship than in a multiracial democracy. Um, now, Father Matt Malone, who's America's editor-in-chief and president, interviewed Father Brian Massingale for our YouTube channel, and it was just such an insightful conversation and deep conversation that we wanted to share it here with our Church Meets World audience. Yeah. And this podcast, Church Meets World, it's always inspired by the important journalism found on America's pages and online. And we want to meet you where you are, where we are. And right now, we are facing an existential threat to our democracy. So it's important that we all remain vigilant in our response. So this is exactly why we wanted to share this interview with you here on the Church Meets World podcast. That's right. And after the interview, Maggie and I will be back to reflect on some of the things that we drew out of it. Uh, so stick around for that. But first, here's Father Matt Malone, SJ, and Father Brian Massingale on how to make spiritual sense of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Good day and welcome to Behind the Story. I'm Father Matt Malone, the editor-in-chief of America Magazine. And today, uh, as you 
surely know we are remembering the events of yesterday uh, when a mob of insurrectionists incited by the sitting president of the United States stormed the United States Congress, um, took it over, disrupted the work of our legislators in the execution of their constitutional duties, um, and really shook the, the foundations of this democracy uh, to its core. Um, it was a, a, a shocking, but perhaps not entirely surprising event, given what we have been experiencing over the last four or five years. To help us make sense of that event today, I'm joined by uh, Father Brian Massengale, who is a professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University and who has written a piece for America Magazine, uh, which you can find a link to in the description uh, below. Father Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be with you. So you wrote this article for America, really, as these events were unfolding. Uh, what were you seeing from your perspective? Well, when I was turned on the TV, because uh, I got a text message saying, are you watching this? And I said, watching what? Because I fully expected from all the press reports that there would be a kind of a routine kind of objection, which was very routine because it never happened before, but something that would be kind of non-eventful. So I turned on the TV and was just dismayed by what I saw in front of me. I saw images of the Capitol being absolutely overrun by rioters. We can't really call them protesters because they were not exercising the peaceful right of assembly that we all enjoy by the Constitution. They were there to actually hold the government hostage, to actually shut it down, and to use violence and intimidation to disrupt the very process of democracy. And they were doing so at the instigation of the sitting president of the United States. As I was watching these events um, unfold, I was chilled. I was angry, um, deeply dismayed. And the piece that I wrote for America actually flowed out of that deep anger. And part of me was second guessing myself, like, should I be writing this in real time when I'm not even processing my own anger? And then it occurred to me that anger, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is the passion that moves the will to justice. And all too often, I think, injustice flourishes in our society precisely because we're not angry enough. Now, the difference between the anger that I was feeling, hopefully, than the anger that we saw uh, in the streets of Washington, which was simply a, a diluted rage um, directed toward unjust ends. And I think the kind of anger that we as followers of Jesus need to have is an anger that's directed toward protecting what is right, protecting the truth. And I thought truth was fundamentally under assault when I, uh, during the events of yesterday. And what, in, in your judgment, was uh, the truth or that set of truths that was under assault yesterday at the Capitol? Well, the truth was that we had a just and fair election, a just and fair election that was a determination that was reached by almost 60 different court decisions, by multiple recounts in many different states. In Georgia, in, Georgia, in Georgia alone, there were three different recounts. The state of Wisconsin had a partial recount. Pennsylvania had a recount. In all these, in Arizona, there was a recount. In all of these administrative and judicial processes, there was no evidence whatsoever of there being widespread 
fraud or anything that was widespread illegitimate. And when the, the president's lawyers were challenged on this in court, they never were able to bring forth any forth of, cons- of convince- convincing evidence to that, to that, to that end. And so I saw that the truth was that we have a we had the, our democracy was being hijacked, that this election was illegitimate, that we had to somehow save the country from something that was nefarious, and that truth was was that lie is something that's absolutely poisonous to democracy, and to put it in Catholic terms, is profoundly injurious to the common good. Um, this is the reason why I quoted Pope John Paul II in my article, where he says that truth is the mother, the basis, and the foundation of justice. And I think what we're finding out through the events of yesterday is that truth matters and rhetoric matters. And we cannot have a just society if people are unwilling to acknowledge the truth, even when that truth is one that is unpopular or one that's undesirable for them. Now, like you, I was I, I was also uh, shocked and appalled by what I was seeing, but there was part of me too that wasn't entirely surprised, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and that has something to do with you know what I understand to be the deeper truth, which is the reality of the human condition, and and as it exists in this country from my limited perspective. Um, but you also spoke in your piece about about seeing a a, a deeper truth at play here in these events. Absolutely. Um, If I could put this in Ignatian categories, um, the dynamic of the first week of the exercises of St. Ignatius is that we come to understand ourselves as loved sinners, that we first have this overwhelming understanding of being loved by God in a way that's beyond our desert, and then we're led by that love to examine where in our lives we are blocking God's love or unfaithful to God's love. And so the deeper truth, and this is, you know, with all due respect to President Biden and others who said that yesterday is not who we are as Americans, the deeper truth is that yesterday revealed a deep part of who we are as Americans, that we have a longstanding um, tolerance, at least for the last four years, of lies and deceit and hypocrisy and narcissism. And furthermore, we have a long history in the United States of deeply ingrained racial privilege and white racism. And that this president had rolled to office on a wave of appealing to white racial resentment and grievance. And that's been the base of his power and his appeal from day one and continuing throughout his presidency. And we saw that yesterday in terms of the composition of the protesters, in terms of their message, in terms of the raw appeal to the violence. All of that is part of who we are as Americans and part of what our political discourse has become. And so in some ways, it's not surprising what happened. In fact, as I ar- argued in the, in the article, this was the inevitable result of where the last four years of dem- demagoguery have gotten us. We actually yesterday in our editorial in America um, called attention to this uh, phrase, which uh, not only uh, President Biden, but uh, several bishops have used, which you which you also mentioned, but this is not who we are. And um, one of the things that I thought the editors got right there was they said, look, this is, as, as you're saying, this is a part of who we are and we have to face it. 
and we have to be honest about it. It's not the totality of who we are, but it is a very serious part of who we are, and we have to face it. And there's a, I think, you know, white folks are often shocked to discover that this is still a part of our national life, and um, and yet we're confronted by the obvious reality that it is when you see people with who are have anti-Semitic T-shirts and racist T-shirts and flying the bringing the Confederate flag into the U.S. Capitol, something that not even the Confederate Army was able to do. Um, there, that's, there's a serious disconnect, isn't there, here, it, between um, the perception uh, among people of color of these realities and the perception of white folks. That was something that was remarked to constantly yesterday, especially people comparing the response of law enforcement to the invasion of the Capitol um, yesterday and of Black Lives Matter protesters um, this summer, who were met with a massive uh, military response. Um, they were showing pictures yesterday of, from the summer, where you know the, the National Guard was lined on the steps of the Capitol, almost four or five deep, as a barrier to protect the Capitol. And yesterday, what we saw was that another group, far more dangerous group, was treated with um, well, I have to say the you know, almost exact opposite reaction, where they received almost no opposition upon getting in. They even showed um, people taking uh, Capitol Police taking selfies with the insurrectionists. Uh, this is and so we, many people were saying yesterday. Had this been a group of black or brown um, insurrectionists, rioters? they would have received and did receive a far different kind of law enforcement response. And I think that the contrast between how we treat white insurrectionists and those who are exercising their legitimate First Amendment rights is telling in this country. It's extremely telling in this country. And I think it's something that many white Americans continue to be shocked by, but for which many people of color are saying this is indeed another example of the double standard of justice that exists in this country. Yeah, I noticed in my conversations uh, and just even brief interactions with my white friends and 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 my family uh, yesterday that that we white folks really fail to understand that point that you just made, and and I think it's often because we think of racism, racial prejudice as a, as conscious sentiment, as if somebody is standing there in front of the Capitol with their baton saying, I'm not going to respond to these folks the way I responded to those folks two months ago, right? And that's not really what we're talking about here, is it? No, you know, we're talking about the ways in which people's bodies are framed because of their racial identities. And so when we see a group of black or brown protesters, we immediately associate black skin or darker skin with danger, with threat. And with white people, white skin is framed differently. We're framed to give it the benefit of the doubt. Because um, after all, these are people who we know, they're like us. And so we're framed to see them as people who are more virtuous or who we give them we presume their best intentions, whereas we wouldn't make that same presumption of innocence for people of darker skin. And I think we saw that, um, I think we see it also in, with white folks who are saying, with, like you said, these are members of our family. We, members of our family who we know support the president or who voted for the president. And so if we criticize the president or protesters, uh, his protesters or supporters too much, then we're 
or also implicating people that we love. We're implicating our friends. We're implicating our family. And I think that blinds us then to see what's really going on in America. That what's really going on in America is this age old system of white preference, a white preference, which is being challenged by the nation's um, changing demography. And that anxiety is something that um, the president didn't create, but that he's managed to skillfully exploit and manipulate and which, unfortunately, members of the faith community have not been forthright in challenging or naming. Right. So your point is that the, the, uh, the president hasn't created the reality of what we might call systemic injustice, but he's, he's cynically benefited from it. Oh, cynically exploiting it and manipulating it. And in, and in this, as I say in the article, it, it's easy for us to lay all the blame at the president. And indeed, he has a significant, he just serves significant responsibility. After all, he is the nation's chief executive. However, we have to admit that the president could not have done what he's done without the complicity, the support, the enabling, the enabling behavior of a whole host of entities of people who've known of his incompetence but refused to call it out, of people who repeated his lies about a stolen election for their own short-term, short-term, short-term gain, or those who um, cynically manipulated this for their own political advantage, or those who knew what was going on but said they're not going to confront him because they're afraid of a presidential tweet. In other words, there's a whole host of enabling behaviors that enabled the president to do what he did and to be as destructive a force in our democracy as he has been. And of course, among that army of people who have enabled the president or or simply been silent out of out of fear or self-interest, there are a lot of Catholics, right, in that group. And we got to be honest about that too, as one of our questioners. So uh, ask about absolutely and this to me as a catholic priest is something that is i find the most disturbing and frankly the most infuriating um i remember when president obama was elected uh, back in 2008 and i happened to be at a meeting at um, the usccb headquarters in washington dc and i overheard a bishop who i will not identify now but who said that um, Obama's election will be the church's Golgotha. And we're on our road to Calvary because of the election of President Obama. Um, when a bishop during Obama's time compared him to Stalin because of his advocacy of the Affordable Care Act. We have never heard bishops in the United States forthrightly criticize the sitting president, the current sitting president, um, in those, in that kind of apocalyptic terms, we, despite the fact that this man has, is throughout his tenure as president, has consistently threatened and undermined every democratic norm by which this country has functioned, and so we have the silence of the United States hierarchy as a group when it comes to some of the president's most egregious behavior. But also I think there's a more subtle thing happening in the Catholic side. And that is during the election, 
we said that there are a number of issues that Catholics should consider in forming their consciences and coming to a decision as to whom to vote for um, during the election. But the bishops said in their official document forming uh, faithful citizenship is that abortion is the preeminent issue. And in the in pastoral language, that's how that's heard is that all this other stuff isn't really important. What's really important is a very narrow understanding of what it means to be pro-life. And I think going forward, this is something that the Catholic faith community has got to address forthrightly. And that is, we have to come to a deeper understanding of what it means to be pro-life. And I think what's happened all too often is that that slogan pro-life has been hijacked to mean anti-abortion. And we've never faced fully as a Catholic faith community the significant overlap between the most rabid um, elements of the anti-abortion movement and their overlap with the advocates for racial intolerance. And because we've never named that or faced that directly, the Catholic faith community officially, de facto, becomes a supporter of the worst elements of racial intolerance in our country. How do you understand or explain um, to folks that that you know, dis the, that disparity between what the church professes about life and then the, the, the ways in which um, either, you know, our, our leadership at a national level or even at a community level seems to, to, to pick and choose when to employ that value. You know, there are times when I don't really know how to explain it um, because I was talking about this during the election and I said, this is not the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Even uh, beginning with the Declaration Against Procured Abortion issued by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in 1974, we Catholics were called upon to oppose not only the practice of abortion, but also to oppose those practices which make abortion um, an attractive choice, an attractive option. Every pope since then has expanded our understanding of what it means to be pro-life. Um, St. Pope John Paul II, in his last pastoral visit to the United States, called upon Catholics to be unconditionally pro-life. And by unconditionally pro-life in St. Louis in 1999, he stressed opposition to euthanasia, opposition to the death penalty, and a proactive measure to eradicate, as he said, every form of racism. Racism, we put explicitly in the context of being what he called, I quote here, unconditionally pro-life. We saw this also with uh, Pope Francis when this summer, and after the killing of George Floyd, he said that it's impossible to, to turn a blind eye to racism and to claim that we're uh, protecting the sanctity of every human life. And so I, I really don't understand the disconnect between the teaching of the universal church in these matters, which is quite clear, and the American reception of it by um, too many bishops, to be frank, and by too many of our clergy. Yeah, I think one of the things that really continually surprised me during the course of the election was the extent to which uh, in, our, in, our, in our Catholic conversation in this country, we were 
acting like if this was any other presidential election and and, mm-hmm. and the stakes were not higher. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Were. And I think one of the things we need to go, we need to take more seriously as Catholics in future political discernment, we need to understand that character matters. Um, in previous iterations of the faithful citizenship document, the bishops made that um, point more clearly, but it seems that as um, with each succeeding document, that point is made, but it's made less clearly and um, less forthrightly. What we saw here was a almost total blindness to the character of the candidates in favor of a very narrow understanding of where they stood on the issue of life and religious liberty. And we acted as if all we're debating here are policies whether we and not looking at the fact that we had an admitted, you know, nationalist who is, you know, forthright about he said, I am a nationalist. And yet that didn't factor at all in our conversation about um, about the election. And I was just I was like you, I was appalled that we that people weren't making that deep connection, that we were simply overlooking the fact of his character. And as long as he stood with us, with us on um, two very specific issues, everything else could be given a functional pass. And I, I think, you know, I was also mindful of, of, of an additional point, uh, which is that, you know, our, our institutions, the institutions of our political life are under assault uh, during this presidency and the very means through which uh, we adjudicate policies around these values and decide what we're going to do as a country. And I thought to myself, without that, then what does it matter what this president professes his priorities to be? Um, well, and, but then I sort of quickly realized we were talking, I, I was talking to a, uh, often to a group of people who had an entirely different uh, worldview, information stream, um, not necessarily different values because they, they, they certainly claim to have the same values, but saw a world that I just didn't see. And what do you, how, what are the resources in our tradition that could help us break through that, that massive gulf in, in information, in truth? Hmm. That's a really important question and a very painful question. I think, I think that one of the things that um, we have to understand is that I believe a wiser man than either of us said once, the truth will make you free. And I think that one of the ways that we have as citizens, a way of understanding truth is to understand that there is a difference between opinion and fact. I mean, there is such a thing as Catholics, we believe there is objective reality and objective truth. It may not be what we would want it to be, but it it is true. And I think one of the things that we we suffer from in the Catholic Church is that um, we're very hesitant to confront our people with painful truths that would make us unpopular. I've said this before about racism, and I said that the Catholic Church's biggest failure when it comes to confronting the sin of racism is that we always want to tailor our presentation of the Church's message and our presentation of social reality in ways that will not make white people uncomfortable. And I think that we've seen that we saw this also in terms of our political discernment. 
that we don't want to forthrightly criticize the president because we don't want to be seen as partisan. But we have to draw a distinction between saying, no, we're not criticizing him because he's a Republican. And I'm not criticizing him because I might be a Democrat. I am criticizing him because his policies, his demeanor, his rhetoric is offensive to Christian values and Christian morality. That you cannot call a group of human beings um, infestations, invaders. You cannot cage children in cages in the name of national security and claim that that is Christian behavior. And I think that one of the things we need to do, and frankly, I think we have to do a lot of remedial education of clergy and catechists, is to teach our clergy and catechists how do we help our people to form a social conscience. A social conscience isn't one that's a partisan reality, but it's one that says that when we come to making decisions about our common life together, those decisions need to be informed by the gospel and not by our political party or political allegiance. And that's not a radical Fordham University professor saying that. That's from the compendium of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, where it teaches us that every political party and every political allegiance needs to be a critical one. And that we, at the very least, we have to be forthrightly critical and even condemning of the kind of conflation we saw yesterday in Washington, D.C., where we had people holding a Trump banner in one hand and a cross in the other. And we say, no, these are not equal realities. These are not equal realities. And that we always must subject every political leader and every political product policy, whether it's Donald Trump or um, Joseph Biden, to the light of the gospel. And I, I, one of the you know challenges that I see in the church's public witness uh, over the last few years is, and I suspect you'll agree with this, that the the way in which we talk about forming consciences is 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 overly legalistic. As mm. if we are we are weighing a series of laws and which law mm-hmm. is more important, and uh, and we're making a, a calculation based on a set of series of propositions. There's a deeply spiritual dimension to that process of forming conscience, and one of our readers alludes to this when um, he he asks about, you, you know, when you feel that anger, the kind of anger that you were talking about um, this morning in reaction to these events, um, that can get in the way of forming your conscience, but how, or it can lead to the formation of your conscience. So how do Absolutely. you tell the difference between that righteous anger and that anger that 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 um, that doesn't that doesn't lead us in the direction we want to go. Okay, um, I always appeal to um, Saint Thomas Aquinas. And I realize I'm talking to a Jesuit, um, and Saint Ignatius also has a lot to discern say about the discernment of spirits, which I'll get to in just a moment. But at least in terms of anger, Saint Thomas Aquinas teaches that we can incur the sin of anger in one of three ways. Um, the first is what he says is um, by inappropriate object, which is a kind of misdirected anger. A classic ang- uh, case would be where I'm angry at a spouse or a significant other, and I take it off my co- take it out on my coworkers at work. Um, a, a second way we can extend, we've heard of the sin of anger, is by excess. 
where anger becomes wrath or rage and it's out of control and it's misdirected. And I think we saw a lot of that yesterday in Washington, D.C. The third way he says that we incur the sin of anger is by deficiency. And he says that we, that we sin and that we incur the sin of anger when we're not angry when we ought to be. And then he says, as in the presence of injustice. Because anger is the passion that moves the will to justice. And so I think that he gives us a very healthy uh, way of discerning when anger is appropriate and necessary and when it's destructive and wrathful and when it doesn't lead us, uh, when it's not a, a manifestation of what Ignatius would call the good spirit. The good spirit is always going to lead us to create a society of justice and a society where justice is determined not by what's good for me individually, but what is good for us as a people. Pope John Paul II said that the question that confronts every major human group is this, how are we living together, together? And I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves as U.S. citizens and as U.S. Catholics um, far more uh, forthrightly than we have before. How are we living together? What is the shape of our common life? And that shape of the common life cannot be determined simply by looking at one or two narrow issues. We need to look at the survival of our species. We need to also look at um, how are those who are the least among us, how are they faring? I mean, Matthew chapter 25 gives us a great way of looking at our common life together. How are the hungry being treated? How are the naked being clothed? How are the strangers being welcomed? How are the imprisoned among us being treated? Because Jesus tells us that's the asset test of our discipleship. That's the asset test of our following of Jesus. How do we treat Jesus as Mother Teresa of Calcutta would say, uh, who comes in the distressing disguise of the poor. And in our political discourse, at least this past election, I didn't hear a whole lot of conversation about the poor, except as scapegoats. And that is antithetical to our Christian belief. So that, I mean, I think that that's a really great, that, that's very helpful. And that, that question, um, how are we living together? Uh, what is the common life that we are, that is our reality and the common life that we envision uh, is a really helpful framing device. And in light of that, what, what is it that we can do at a practical level in the near term or over, over the long haul? Um, what can our readers do in their individual lives um, to, to, to help bring change around these realities? Okay. Um, one, I think, is that we need to be honest about um, what we got wrong in our analysis or in our approach um, to the current president. I think we need to have a long, serious look as a faith community about where did we go wrong here? What did we miss? Or what were we turning a blind eye to what didn't we want to face that was there all along, but was inconvenient for us to see. I think in your editorial of yesterday, you used the word repentance. 
And I think repentance is a key word going forward. We have to be honest about, you know, how we got this wrong and be honest about the voices in our community that got it right, that we chose not to listen to. And why didn't we listen to them? I think that we also have to be honest going forward that white nationalism, we also call Trumpism, is not going to disappear after January 20th. That the anger, the, the rage, the, um, the, the uh, nihilistic anarchy, and I will use that phrase, that nihilistic anarchy that we saw displayed yesterday in Washington, D.C., is not going away. And I think we need to name that as a clear and present danger to the survival of our democracy. A third thing I think that, um, especially as individual Catholics, we, have, we can do is that we need to educate ourselves about the sin of racism. And we need to be honest about our own conscious and unconscious complicity in that sin. Um, this summer during the Black Lives Matter protest, I I wrote an essay in which I outlined a series of steps that the Catholic community has to take because I think that the sin of racism is a corrosive cancer that will destroy our democracy if we do not attend to it more forthrightly than we have. But the final thing I think that we as Catholics need to do is that we need to have a sense of hope as well. And the reason why I want to end on that note of hope is that, well, we've had this very heavy conversation this morning, and we need to because this is heavy stuff and this is serious stuff. I mean, what we saw yesterday was unprecedented, and we, we have to look at that squarely in the face. But as I often tell people, the best way to predict the future is to help create it. Human life, social life is the result of human decisions. And that means that we as human beings can change things. As I say at the end of my book, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, I say that what humans break, divide, and separate, we can, with God's help, also heal, unite, and restore. In other words, what I want to say is that with God, cooperating with God's grace, we have the agency, we have the ability to create a better society. And I think that we need to understand that the best way to predict the future of our country and the future of our church is to be proactive agents, co-creators with God in creating that more just future that, is, that we believe is God's vision and God's will. That was Father Matt Malone, SJ, America's Editor-in-Chief, and Father Brian Massingale of Fordham University, discussing the insurrection that took place on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And I think what struck me from this conversation, Maggie, was um, <laughs> Brian raising an issue that many people have on, on Twitter since this whole thing happened uh, that we've been following, which is, you know, the image of, of what would have happened if these were not white insurrectionists, but if they were black and brown Americans who had stormed the U.S. Capitol. And that is like holding up a mirror to all of us 
um, and, 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 and reflecting on deep seated institutional systemic racism because this white mob, um, was able to get to the Capitol almost unimpeded. Um, the police was easily overwhelmed. Um, and I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure that there is lots of security around the U S Capitol that could have been there. We just have to compare it to the Black Lives Matter protests of this past summer and how um, those are organized, peaceful demonstrations um, right. and civil disobedience. And and those are met with SWAT teams, right? Um, so, yes, there's questions of uh, national security here, but why was it so easy? And why were some of the officers seen taking selfies with the rioters. Um, there's a there's a lot of questions that we have, and and we can't uh, overlook the fact that most of those rioters were indeed white, and you know, holding kind of white supremacist uh, signs and symbols. So, uh, race is absolutely a part of this. And you know, George Floyd was murdered for a twenty dollar counterfeit bill, and the amount of looting that took place at the Capitol, you know, was collectively worth so much more than that. Um, so just when you juxtapose these things side by side, um, it it really forces us to, to look at um, just the searing racial injustice. Yeah. And I, I think the, the service that Father Brian does for us is to be very honest. You know, he, he does not hold back in, in, in his clear recognition of racism at the heart of this and a kind of um, spiritual poverty, right, that that festers in people uh, to the point that they can become violent. They can be overtaken by ideology or hatred or prejudice or whatever it is. I did think it was really interesting that, um, you know, Joe Biden among them, uh, but some people went to Twitter or elsewhere were saying, you know, this is not who we really are. America is better than this. And, and Brian points out that uh, actually that's not entirely helpful. We shouldn't be painting this rosy picture of, of the United States of America when clearly there is stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one thing to appeal to a higher ideal for America, but it's another to say, you know, this isn't happening. And effectively, when you say this is not America, this is not who we are, um, when the Capitol is being ransacked, it actually is a reflection of where we are and who we are. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and truth telling, right? We, we have to speak the truth. So much of the chaos of the last four years as, is the result of spinning the truth, creating alternative realities, uh, you know, looking at grass and saying that grass is not green <laughs> on, on the, I'm talking on the, on the part of Donald Trump and his enablers. And fantasy um, campaigns. F- exactly. And, and every person, every person, every citizen of this country, every person who loves America or has a vested interest in seeing America succeed and wanting it to succeed um, has to hold a mirror up uh, and say, where am I in all of this? You know, and, and, and to what degree am I especially if you're a Christian, right? To what degree am I actually fighting against these systems of racism, these systems of, of prejudice? And to what degree are we enabling this? And to what degree are we enabling it? Exactly. That quote from Brian that, you know, uh, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Like that has to be front and center. Mm-hmm. Truth telling is so crucial at this moment. Yeah. 
So that does it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Let your friends and family know about the show, and we will be back with all new episodes in the weeks ahead. To read America's editorial or Brian's article on this, go to americamagazine.org. We'll also link to them both in the show notes. To watch the video interview, uh, you can go to America's YouTube channel. And of course, the best way you can support this ministry is by subscribing at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. Sound design for this episode was by Noah Levinson. For America Media, I'm your co-host, Sebastian Gomes, with Maggie Van Dorn. We'll see you next time.